Hello and welcome to Vision of Zion. Today's date is May the 15th, 2023. I have with me Sean White. How are you doing, Sean? Great. Good to hear from you tonight, Craig. Yeah, we didn't know if we could pull this off today, but here we are. We both had productive days and it's in the evening now and we're looking forward to talking more about Isaiah and what these chapters mean for us today. Isaiah 10, what's this chapter about, Sean? This chapter goes back to the beginning of the tribulation and gives an overview of the rise and fall of the king of Assyria. It summarizes the humbling of the people and the removal of the wicked that humble the righteous. It's just a, a kind of a quick overview, you know, because we're looking at uh, seven years overall of the rise and fall of this. So, <clears throat> all right. So I'll go ahead and read the verses, and we'll let our listeners know that we're going to go through these. I think there are 32 verses. We're going to go through them rather quickly. Sean's going to look at his notes, and then after we do that, we're going to discuss them in more detail. Verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, and to the writers who write oppressive decrees, to deprive the needy from justice, and to rob the poor among my people of their rights that widows may be their plunder, and that they may take the fa- make the fatherless their prey. Woe, which means great sorrow, will come to those in government who write laws that oppress the poor and deprive the needy of justice. I'm going to have a few things to say about this when we come back, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What will you do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which will come from afar? To him will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? God is speaking to the leaders of the people who have opposed or oppressed the poor. These leaders have acted as if the prophecies of the Bible did not exist. They believe it is impossible that the promised lands could be invaded by another country. God is reminding them that they <clears throat> there will be nowhere they can flee to escape what is coming other than turning to God for help. Verse 4, <clears throat> they will only bow down under the prisoners and will fall under the slain. And for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hands are stretched out still. Those people who have scoffed at God's word and the servant he empowers, will suffer as much as the other wicked who have rejected God. They have no protection from the invading army. Verses 5 and 6. Alas, Assyrian, the rod of my anger, the staff in whose hands is my indignation, I will send him against a profane nation, and against the people who anger me, I will give him a command to take the plunder and to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God will soon empower his left hand, the king of Assyria. He will allow the king of Assyria to overtake his people that once knew God and have now become a godless nation who have broken their covenants to remain on this promised land. The army will be given power to take the riches of the people and enslave them 
This takes us back to chapter 8, in which he says, hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil. Verse 7, however, he doesn't mean so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off not a few nations. In this verse, he's referring to the king of Assyria. In the beginning, the king of Assyria does not have a desire to overtake the world. In his heart, he just wants to destroy a few countries that have hurt his people through oppressive laws and regulations. I've got some questions about that one in a minute. Verse, verses 8 and 9. For he says, aren't all of my princes, princes kings? Isn't Kalno like Carchemish? Isn't Hamath like Arpad? Isn't Samaria like Damascus? The king of Assyria doesn't really believe that God actually exists. He believes that it is by his own strength and planning that he overcomes other countries. One after another, he continues to overthrow the leadership of different countries. Even as he approaches the promised land, he feels he can overthrow it. Mm. Verses 10 and 11. As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, whose engraved images exceeded those of Jerusalem and of Samaria, Shall I not, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Anciently, the region of Samaria was given to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Today, we can think of Samaria <clears throat> excuse me, as the promised land of America. Here we see the king of Assyria boasting in his own power to overtake other countries who prided themselves as Christians. He feels their belief in God has given them no strength. Then after invading Samaria, America, he has no worries in conquering the country of Israel. He is partly correct in believing they have no power in their Christian God, for when the people do not live up to their covenants, they lose the power and protection of God. Verse 12. Therefore, it will happen that, when the Lord has performed his whole work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the willful proud heart of the king of Assyria and the insolence of his arrogant looks. It is after the king of Assyria has humbled the prideful people of the promised land of America and Israel sufficiently that God punishes the arrogant king of Assyria. Verses 13 and 14. For as he said, quote, by the strength of my hand, I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, and I have removed the boundaries of the peoples, and have robbed their treasures, like a valiant man, I have brought down their rulers. My hand has found the riches of the peoples like a nest, and like one gathers eggs that are abandoned, I have gathered all the earth. There was no one who moved their wing, or that opened their mouth, or chirped, close quote. This arrogant king of Assyria feels he has effortlessly taken the world and removed the boundaries of all nations as he took their wealth. He feels that hardly anyone raised an effort to stop him. Verse 15, should an axe brag against him who chops with it? Should a saw exalt itself above him who saws with it? Here God is referring to an axe that has no feelings in the hand of the master that chops wood. 
Does the axe raise above the man who uses it to chop the wood with? No, it has no power to do so. Neither does the king of Assyria have power after God has used him to humble the unrighteous people. Verses 16 and 17. Therefore the Lord, Yahweh of armies, will send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Yahweh of armies, God's right hand, also known as the servant, is given power by God to bring about trials upon the prideful and unrepentant. The light of Israel is growing number of people that can hear God's voice clearly within themselves. The Holy One represents Yahweh of armies, who leads God's armies. He will remove the king of Assyria's armies and those that supported the invasion in one day. In my walk with the Savior, the scene looked like the battle in Second Chronicles 20. The Moabites and the Ammonites had come up against Jehoshaphat to battle Judea. Jehoshaphat and the people of Judea were in great fear. Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. They cried to God to save them. The Spirit of God came to the midst of the congregation, and he said unto them, Be not afraid nor dismayed by the reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Then he instructed them as to where to go in the morning, and on the morrow they began to sing praises to God, and as they sang, the opposing army fell dead. Verses 18 and 19. He will consume the glory of his forest, and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. It will be as when a standard bearer faints. The remnant of the trees of his forest shall be few, so that a child could write their number. Yahweh of armies will take control of all that the king of Syria has conquered in the promised land of America. It will happen fast as when a flag bearer faints. The number that left that supported the king of Assyria will be so few that a child could write the number. The remaining army of the king of Assyria will remain in other lands and will later fight in the battle of Armageddon. Verses 20 and 21. It will come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and those who have escaped from the house of Jacob will no more again lean on him who struck them, but shall lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, even the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. A remnant of Israel, a small portion of God's children, will have escaped the tribulation brought upon America and Israel. They will no longer look for support from the king of Assyria, but will look to Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, even Elohim, for the truth. Verses 22 and 23. For though your people, Israel, are like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord, Yahweh of armies, will make a full end, and that determined throughout all the earth. Even though Abraham's posterity once were like numbering the sands of the sea, only a remnant or small number will return. 
this remnant will be overflowing with righteousness as they trust God deeper than they ever have. Yahweh of armies will continue removing the wicked until the earth is ready for the Savior's return. Verses 24 and 25. Therefore the Lord, Yahweh of armies, says, quote, My people who dwell in Zion, don't be afraid of the Assyrian. Though he strike you with the rod and lift up his staff against you, as Egypt did, for yet a very little while, and the indignation against you will be accomplished, and my anger will be directed to his destruction. Close quote. Yahweh of armies, the person directing and guiding the preparations for the Savior's return, tells the people in the promised land of America to not be afraid, as he is now giving full protection to those people. All of Yahweh of Armies' energy is now directed at completely destroying the king of Assyria and the alliance of countries he has formed. I sense a chiastic structure here, but we'll come back to that. Uh, yeah. Verse 26, Yahweh of Armies will stir up a scourge against him, as in the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. His rod will be over the sea, and he will lift it up like he did against Egypt. Here Isaiah likens the upcoming battle to the battle referenced in Judges 7, verses 23-25. Gideon and his army of 300 men caused great fear to come upon the 135,000 Midianites. Men from all over gathered together, chasing the Midianites until they were cornered. At that point they took the two leaders of the Midianites and took off their heads. Yahweh of armies power will stretch across the sea and strike all those associated with the king of Assyria in the same way he follow, allowed the people of the promised land to undergo tribulation to turn their hearts back to God. Verse 27, It will happen in that day that his burden will depart from off your shoulder and his yoke from off your neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing oil. It will happen at a time when the king of Assyria's army is removed from the promised land of America. The burden or bondage from the king of Assyria shall be removed from the people of America because they have renewed their covenants with God. It is always through obeying God's commandments and renewing our commitment to God that we are freed from our burdens. All right, now let's go to verses 28 through 32. I think these are the last verses. Oh, no, there's also 33 and 34. I apologize. 28 through 32, he has come to Ayath, he passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have gone over the pass. They have taken up their lodging at Geba. Rama trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud with your voice, daughter of Galim. Listen, Lysha, you poor Anathoth. Madmina is a fugitive. The inhabitants of Gibim or Gabim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He shakes his hands at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. That's a lot of names of places and maybe people too there. It is. As Yahweh of armies brings together his army that fought with him in heaven to bind Lucifer and third of the host of heaven, the alliance that the king of Assyria has formed runs from their presence. Those fleeing God's army stop at Nob, which is an ancient town outside of Jerusalem. Nob is northwest of the Mount of Olives, 
Now that it's also the site of the massacre referenced in First Samuel, verses uh, tw- twenty-one and twenty-two, it sets the stage for the Battle of Armageddon. Finally, verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh of armies, will lop the boughs with terror. The tall shall be cut down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Here we see Yahweh of armies cutting down all those that oppose God or fight against God. This is the battle of Armageddon in which the wicked are finally disposed of. Okay. Well, there's a lot here. Wow, there's a lot here. Yeah. A lot of thoughts came, Sean, as we were, as we were going through that. Um, it appears to me that there's a chiastic structure in these verses, uh, which means that there are certain ideas leading to a center point and then backing out either the same or opposite meaning, which to me looks like it's opposite. The center meaning seems to be that a remnant is going to return and then the Lord is going to fight their battles and protect them once the cleansing has taken place. So first we have basically the Lord's people, the promised land, people in the promised land being uh, cleansed, being uh, mowed down, or oppressed by the king of Assyria. And then once the cleansing has happened, the center idea would be in verses uh, 10 through 12. And then you see this backing out. Like in the one hand, they're going to be destroyed in one day, right? And suddenly, I'm sorry, I I said 10 and 12. I meant to say the center is uh, 20 and 21 or 20 through 23. And then you have the Lord in that day, you know, going the opposite direction, right? Uh, Doing the opposite uh, once the uh, Yahweh of armies has completed the Lord's work. So this is very interesting to me. Did you, do you see that pattern here in this chapter? I kind of see that, but I also see somewhat of a linear structure because of the scenes that I have seen in the future. I mean, as uh, I saw us taking back this nation in the first stage and we approached this one big final battle, I saw the leader of the army raising his arms and the young men and the men with him singing, and everybody in that scene fell to the ground. And the the young men and stuff were going through the streets and stuff just in total awe going, how in the world did this happen? They're lying dead everywhere, all the wicked. And then in the preceding days, as we travel eastward, and stuff through the country, um, even the people hiding out in barns and chicken coops and stuff were shocked because there just is no evil. All of a sudden, one day, they're just all gone there. But this is not for the whole world. This is just for the lands of the promised land where the they have been attacking the righteous or they about to attack the righteous. And then this proceeds out. And then as they cross and of course, this Battle of Nob, where they prepare the Battle of Nob. I mean, that's so interesting that that's just right outside the to the north uh, east, I believe it is, of the Mount of Olives. And I mean, we know that the staging for the last final battle is right at this point, and everybody's gathering together and getting ready for this final grand battle of everything. Well, I find this incredible because. <clears throat> 
this is the same account you just described where they don't know what happened to the enemy uh, is recorded in the autobiographical account of Alfred Douglas Shung. Let me go grab that real quick. All right. All right. This is uh, in chapter seven of the autobiography. And if you want to buy a copy, it's on visionofzion.org under the uh, merch tab. You can purchase a copy or just go straight to amazon.com to buy it. But here's what... Here's what Alfred Douglas Young says. So you tell me, Sean, if this is the same scene or just a similar scene, okay? Okay. He says, after I saw this, I saw that many saints had gathered together and they were persecuted by the peoples or Gentiles that surrounded them. Those who led this numerous army set a time during which they would receive under their protection and spare the lives of of all who would desert the saints and go over to them. Many began to go over, and the people continued to go until it appeared as though about one half of the saints apostatized and went over to the enemy. As time drew near, which the enemy had set to come against the saints to battle, I saw the armies drawn up in battle array, and the army of the Gentiles seemed almost numberless. I saw as the armies confronted each other, two men go out from the ranks of the saints towards their enemies. As they approached, They lifted up their voices and entreated for peace. Instead of listening to them, the commanding officer of the enemy ordered his men to fall upon them with their swords. As they rushed forward to do so, I heard a still, small voice, but it was very piercing. At the sound of it, the earth trembled and shook. The weapons fell from the hands of the army of the enemy, and they fell to the earth as though they were dead. I looked toward the saints, and they had laid down their weapons and with her hands raised to heaven, were praising God for their deliverance. I again looked towards their enemies, and not a vestige of them was seen. What became of them was not made known to me. The saints appeared to march off to the northwest in good order. So is that the same scene or just a similar scene to what Isaiah is describing here? That's the same scene as the, the big battle to take back the United States. Wow, that really is. It is so dramatic and so you know. I mean, it's just nobody's ever seen anything like this before. The only thing we have to reference is the stories from the Bible where these things occurred, and so it's hard to describe because we have nothing to reference it to. But they they really did raise their arm in praise and song. Well, the one uh, element of this story that does ring a bell. In scripture, and I agree with you, I don't know of any account like this in scripture, except the one detail where there was a time set aside. And that reminds me of the Book of Mormon, when there were those who believed, I'm sure there were a small percentage, I guess, I'm just guessing, a time was set aside where those who believed in the prophecy of Samuel the Lamanite that Christ would be born at the five-year mark, a time was set aside that if it didn't happen that next day, which is a day and a night and a day, as if it were one day, they'd be killed. And of course, Nephi received the assurance that on that evening, the Savior would be born in the old world. So that time set aside, uh, something about the Lord waiting until the last minute, right, to try the faith of his people. This reminds me, because here we see, uh, just as in the Book of Mormon, people apostatized, and I'm sure there were very few, I think there were very few who were believing in the prophecy, uh, by the same token, one half of the saints 
buckled under the pressure and i don't think they survived the cleansing that came when the army fell upon the saints they they'd already gone to their gone to the other side so that is one element that i see that's that's similar but you have to kind of look at what um brother young was saying there because it spans over what i see about a three-year period of time from the apostasy to this point and so there's a lot that's kind of why isaiah has 64 chapters because mm -hmm. it's hard to cover every aspect in in a linear fashion there's so much going on everywhere that you have to just kind of take it from this standpoint and that standpoint. i see so this this gathering and warning people took place over a period of time okay that that's really yeah. helpful <clears throat> let's go over some of these verses sean and i don't want to belabor it but there is a lot in here oh there uh, is the first thing i wanted to talk about was verses one and two where by these uh unrighteous decrees the writers oppress um and deprive the needy of justice and they rob the the poor uh, i don't think people understand really how inflation works there, there's a tendency for the government who is the one imposing the inflation to just say it's because of shortage of goods or all these reasons why they say inflation occurs the truth is inflation occurs when the money supply is multiplied that's what causes inflation yeah. it's the main thing when i was going to school a speaker an economist came i will never forget that talk i was an undergraduate and he said there's only four ways that the government raises money federal government raises money only four ways and each form of taxation is more indirect and hidden than the than the previous one the first one which is the most direct is a, is a direct income tax they just say hey here's your percentage you got to pay this the next yeah. type of tax or way of raising money is corporate tax now that's less direct than an income a direct income tax because as we've all seen when the cost of doing business goes up what do the corporations do they simply pass it along to the consumer and the government calls the corporations greedy corporations they're greedy no you all you did is you put a tax on the goods and services that they offer and in order for them to stay in business they have to make a profit they just pass it on they're not being greedy at all it's because of the right. tax you can't expect the corporation to just eat it they don't it all gets passed along so forget about the greedy corporations this is the greedy government imposing a tax on the on the corporations and it just passes right through that's why all of our prices have gone up the next method of taxation or raising money is debt we increase the debt limit <clears throat> we're going through another round right now where they're fighting over the debt you know how much debt should we should we have and uh, the more debt, the more percentage of our gross national product goes to pay off that debt. So debt is another way that the government raises money. And in the, at the end of the day, it's another form of taxation because we have to pay it back. And finally, there's inflation. The government gets the money. They increase the money supply by just printing the paper. All the dollars become worthless or worth less. <laughs> I'm sorry, worth less money. And we have more dollars chasing the same amount of goods and uh they can blame the inflation on all these other factors the truth is it's when we call that the inflation reduction act they printed trillions of dollars that was not uh inflation reduction act that was 
inflation. And so often we have these wicked, oppressive decrees written by writers with a label on it, like, and even how much of an infrastructure bill goes towards the actual purpose of the bill, only a fraction of the money. They give it a big label. And if you go through the line by line item, it's going to other things, other causes. So inflation is, is, a, is the most indirect form. It's the most insidious form of taxation. And frankly, it's the one and the only one that, they're, that they've been able to use recently to fund these government projects. The government gets the money first. They spend it while the prices are low. The money supply hits. It's expanded. And the thing is, what's concerning to me about inflation in the United States is that the inflation that we have here has a ripple effect because there are countries throughout the world who are using the US dollar as the you know backup currency to the world currency. We've had it since World War II. So when we print more money, we're really having the entire world subsidize our spending because they're holding on to those dollars believing they have value. And then when we spend it, these super poor countries have these dollar bills that are worth less. And this is what's causing us to deprive or robbing the poor of their rights, the widows, they're plundering. How do the widows plunder? Well, if you're on a fixed income, let's say you got $100 and you're on a fixed income, you're a widow, you're on social security, let's use social security as an example. Okay, for several months before they readjust the social security to a higher percentage because they do adjust it and they, they get robbed two ways. One is until the adjustment occurs, that $100 becomes worth $80 of goods and services because rent's going up, food prices are going up and they're stuck on that fixed income for a period of time. And the second time is when they increase the amount of social security when there's an adjustment made, what's in the bat, what's in their basket of goods that they use to, 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 to decide what the increase should be. There are several things that get redefined and taken in and out of these baskets of goods that define what inflation is and deflate. And the inflation does not include all the basket of goods that a widow or a veteran has to pay for anybody on a fixed income. Mm -hmm. So the result is it does plunder and rob from the poor when we have inflation with people on fixed incomes. It's absolutely true. Now, as far as the, you know, go ahead, Sean, I kind of went on a you know, tirade um, there. If from my point of view and things that I've seen, I've worked in the homeless shelters uh, for a couple of different three month, four month period of time. And I was a real eye awakening to me. And so I've followed the homeless even closer. We have more homeless in America today than we have ever seen historically. And it's um, a mixture of a lot of problems. One being the people can't afford their medical bills. They can't afford to pay them back. They lose their homes. They lose their jobs and everything trying to save a loved one that's dying of cancer or something. And they end up on the streets. There are those that need mental health help, and they're not getting it. And because of the ways we changed, uh, the, well, with the offshore drilling and stuff, that money used to actually go into funds to help city parks and and city civic centers and community activities, which really increased the mental health of the people and everything. And now we're not seeing the help that we used to have for the mental 
healthcare patients and we're getting more and more mental health problems. And so we've got several waves of people. There's people that just can't afford homes in the areas they work. So they live in their cars and uh, we, it's just increasing so fast and there's no way to help them. The insurance costs are getting higher. Now in the worldwide scene, that I have looked at and everything, countries are tired of the U.S.'s instability and our fluctuation back and forth with our political system because of how it affects their manufacturing and their things. And they're so tired of the volatility of the United States that they're, you know, like uh, China and Russia are looking at seizing America and seizing the things so they, they can stabilize the world and stabilize the economy so that people can live better lives. And so I can see that perspective also. And uh, we as a people have become numb or blind to the laws. I mean, who can, not even our leaders that vote on the bills can read through the 4,500 page documents and stuff in three days and understand what's in there and they push it through. And there's so many things that they find out later are oppressing the poor. And we have become so numb that we just say, just vote on it. We trust you. And we really can't trust them because they're putting money in their pockets. They're enriching themselves. We've had congressional leaders who present these bills in the past say, sign it now, read it later. Or they're so long they can't possibly read it before they vote upon it. It's absolutely horrendous the way we conduct business in this country. Um Two things I'd, I'd like our listeners to think about doing. One is look for the interview by Jordan Peterson of Peter Schiff, an economist, who talks about inflation in a much more eloquent way than I can address it. Number two, uh, the cost of um, immigration or illegal immigration, what it's costing this country, and what Michael Yawn, who is a war correspondent, I guess you could say, who's tracking this invasion. He calls it the invasion of America. And it is. It is a type of invasion. Uh, illegal immigration is a type of invasion. Invasion of our culture, invasion of our resources that could be put towards citizens, but it's being redirected for other purposes. Listen to Michael Yon, Y-O-N, on a program called Redacted, R-E-D-A-C-T-E-D. It's on YouTube. It's a very good program. They have lots of great uh, news that doesn't get covered in the mainstream uh, sources. And this gentleman goes on for about an hour talking about the invasion and how the government is paying for 30 and 40 buses of people to come through the uh, uh, the Darien, uh, what do they call it, Darien Pass, Darien Straits. Which is south of the Panama Canal. South of the Panama Canal. And we're busing these people in. Uh, from China into our country, people from Venezuela, uh, people from all over who not only may have uh, bad intentions, but also are sick, coughing, having tuberculosis, spreading disease, these very uh, insidious forms of disease into our country. It's, uh, we're it's also, horrific. We're also seeing this in European countries. And so almost everywhere you look at... Um, the white population or the Ephraimites, um, we're seeing that in Europe and it's just destroying economies and destroying things over there as well as ours. It's using immigration as a weapon. They're weaponizing immigration to bring us down low and to break us to go into their one world system. 
their economic system, their religious system, their everything else to control us and have our domination over us. So bottom line is the Lord is not pleased with the uh, Western civilizations who are doing this to people, and God is going to judge them. Right, uh, and we see in verses uh, verse three. <clears throat> you mentioned China, right? There's this brick movement: uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, forming an alternative currency. But the truth is, I don't believe they can be trusted any more than the United States. So, <laughs> maybe worse. We've seen, for example, China revalue their yen. Right, just revalue it. Just at the at, at the drop of a hat or, uh, on a whim, they just do it. That's why these countries have not been considered for the reserve currency of the world. The dollar has remained strong, but that's going bye bye right now with these trillions and trillions of dollars being spent. Now we're at thirty three trillion dollars deficit. The dollar is becoming worthless uh, right in front of our but, eyes. So, yeah. but but where are we going to go? Right? Where are you going to flee for help? Where are you going to leave your wealth? Where can you put it that it's safe? Nowhere, but with God. I mean, the the, the BRICS countries have a higher GDI index than we do. They're producing more items than uh, this open society or one world order of ours is doing. But, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the Amish lately, and I love those people. I really do. And they don't vote for the president of the United States or anything at this time. And when you ask them who's their leader or whatever, they say Christ is our president, and we just follow what Christ says. And I think that we are going to, we just have to shift more and more away from the political system that we cannot do anything about at this time and put all of our faith and all of our trust and guidance in what Christ would say, as they have done. And then we will find peace and we'll find comfort. Funny you should say the Amish because one of the economists says that's going to become our choice. Either we're going to, you know, be a part of this corrupt system or we're going to live like the Amish live, which doesn't sound very appealing, but being self-sufficient sure sounds appealing uh, in light of these other situations that are going to be occurring. Um, so it, it's uh, it's it's not not a good situation. And uh, I believe that even if we go to, even if countries go to BRIC, once they get the power over, if they become the reserve currency, you know, these are countries that are well, not all of them, but a lot of them are run by dictatorships. They'll be able to manipulate the whole world in a way that's right. even worse than the United States government, which has some checks and balances, but not much anymore. But uh, later, as we go through Daniel and the book of Revelations, we can really see these two factions fighting it out and joining forces at different points and these two evil leaders duking it out over who gets to control the world and ultimately of course neither one wins and uh, well joe scalzi says it's actually three groups but two are combined for now russia china alliance against the western anglo-american meaning anglo-western european countries are one china russia over here and the goal is once they eradicate uh, the uh, Anglo-American power structure, then they're going to duke it out between the two of them. So we'll see. But that's how he describes it. Well, the Middle Eastern countries, they kind of, like in Daniel, they join together and join forces. And then they receive um, 
an approval from uh, the second beast, as I call it, to go forward. And so they are still acting independently, but they are acting in accordance with the other ones. They kind of join forces in a way. Well, and let me be clear. This is Joel Scal- Skalzen's interpretation. He does a, a newsletter called World Affairs Brief. If you haven't been to his website, he's worth listening to. 52 bucks a year to get his newsletter. I read it every every Friday it comes out. It's uh, very pessimistic. And I, I like to say I hate it when he's right, but he's right a lot. But I don't think he's tracking the uh, biblical prophecies and the other prophecies in scripture. Uh, but he's just describing the world as he sees it right now. But I find it doesn't fit story in the scriptures exactly. So I don't agree with him on everything. But as far as his take on where things are going without any intervention by the Lord, it's, it makes some degree of sense. Right. A lot of sense. Okay. Uh, let's go to, uh, um, we've only covered uh, through verse three. Um <laughs> Yeah, here we go. I, I'm pretty wordy. That's why I let you get through these first, because <laughs> I got to uh, have a lot to get off my chest sometimes on these verses. Um, so one thing I want to say, it's, it's a lesson from the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon has a lot of war in it. Uh, there's the pride cycle that gets broken by uh, armies. And when the people are righteous, there's peace. And when the people become unrighteous, the Lord gives power to the enemy to humble them and they fight and a lot of people die. And in the book of, there's a book in the book of Mormon called the book of Mormon. And it says, I think it's uh, either uh, Mormon chapter five, verse four, or Mormon chapter four, verse five. It says it's by the wicked, the wicked are destroyed. So we have this wicked nation who is oppressing the poor and plundering the widow and the fatherless and making their prey. And the Lord says enough, and then he allows this king of Assyria you've been describing to, to go to battle with them and to bring them low. So yeah. I love the fact you're pointing out that the king of Assyria, and this chapter points out the king of Assyria is given this incredible power, but it doesn't mean that their power is going to remain. This is very similar to when the... Uh, Europeans, Northern Europeans uh, came to the Americas and basically swept the Native Americans off the land or into uh, reservations at great loss and and disease and everything. And by but by the same token, they're going to be uh, unless they repent, they're going to be wiped off with a remnant remaining. So this is uh, these are lessons that are very plain in these chapters. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Let's keep going down. The boasting is is wonderful. I'm going to read. So, excuse me. I'm going to read something else to you. Sean, did you have a thought to say before I read this from Alfred Douglas Young's autobiography? Yeah. One thing that I keep seeing that's so interesting to me is that when God has removed his hand of protection from the saints that have not honored their covenants and stuff, um, the king of Assyria really has power over them because they have no protection from God, and yet he doesn't even believe in a God or believe that a God exists. And then as he comes forward, once he reaches a certain point where he's close to attacking the remnant 
of God's house that can hear his voice and everything, then the Lord just comes forth with vengeance. In fact, in chapter 13, it's all about the Lord's day of vengeance and how it's just the Lord reaches a breaking point. His people are humbled. He's pulled away all that he can get. And then all hell is unleashed, so to speak. <laughs> I should point out that, that for the oppressed, this is all good news because there's yes. going to be a remnant and they're going to be protected. And so this may sound very negative, but this is all very positive if we prepare and if we become part of the remnant and prepare ourselves to be on the Lord's side, there will be protection. There will be places of refuge. There will be um, rejoicing. So let me read about uh, what uh, we read about this here. We talk about um, what's going to happen after the king of Assyria or because the king of Assyria I just want to read this from, this is page 114 of my book, The Refiner's Fire, and here's what it says. It says, the angel against this on page 114, if I didn't say that already, the angel again said to me, look, as I looked, I saw a woman dressed in fine scarlet and seated upon a platform supported on four pillars. She appeared to be a very large, powerful woman. Around the platform was gathered an immense multitude of people. She addressed them with great oratorical power and vaunted herself of her great knowledge, wisdom, and power. This kind of sounds like that. The writers of the the law in uh, of these uh, in verse uh, one, writers, you know, these great writers. Uh, anyway, it says vaunt, vaunted herself of her great knowledge, wisdom, and power. The multitude appeared to feel a great veneration for the woman as an exalted personage. While she was thus engaged in boasting of her greatness, which, of course, this king of Syria is doing as well, <clears throat> later, all of a sudden her body opened and her vitals and bowels fell out and down to the earth. I, I keep I always picture Jabba the Hutt you know, <clears throat> in this scene, and then he gets gutted somehow in this. Uh, that's what I picture. So, But it's a woman in this uh, story so or in this vision. The people gazed in wonder at first and then turned away from the sight. The power of the woman was gone, but her frame still remained upright on the platform. The angel said to me, this woman represents this great nation. And as you have seen her vitals and bowels fall out, so will the power depart from this great people, close quote. So this is the precursor to the king of Assyria coming, and I believe, Sean, or simultaneous with it. And uh, and then it happens to the king of Assyria as well. Yeah, you're correct. It um, this first beast, as I call it, which is made up of largely of the UN and the seven heads and the ten crowns upon it and stuff. Uh, they get close and they completely fall or fail in front of it and dissolve. Now there's a few left and they run to the king of Assyria and, and say, hey, we know all about this country. The people will believe us and everything. And you have this mouth of the lion joining with the king of Assyria to conquer this land. And of course, like all villains or thieves or whatever, they don't honor their request. And these people that think they are saved by joining the king of Assyria actually are taken out when they are useless, just like Lucifer does. He gives you great promises and everything, but as soon as he feels like you're useless, it doesn't matter what he's promised you or anything. He just takes you out. So, Very good. I've got two more thoughts 
uh, Sean, then we can close this up. One of them is where in verses 13 through 14, it says, I have removed the boundaries of the peoples and have robbed their treasures. <laughs> Remove the boundaries? Is this the borderless society that we're talking about? Are these yes. people who are coming into our country, who are coming here illegally <clears throat> with the assistance of the government who's supposed to be protecting our borders and protecting our people? Does that not rob us of our treasures when all this money, effort, and time goes into permitting and then assimilating all these people? You're exactly right, Craig. The thing that we have to watch, and I think the Jewish people do a better job of teaching this, is that wherever there's a bad thing happening, they want, you know, like in your interviews with the rabbi and stuff as a youth, they're going to ask you, what is the undercurrent or what is the backside of this? So you don't just start, you're not just looking for one thing. If you're seeing evil here, where's the good going? And so we need to have a bunch of people return to the promised land. We know that. And they're righteous people from all over the earth, and they will need to be there for the second coming. I mean, so we've got these people that have been humbled in other countries. Yes, we have wicked coming in. We have all these other things which will humble the righteous. But these that have already been humbled, they're coming in too. And we need to see this small remnant coming from these other countries. So just no matter wherever we look, we need to look for the undercurrent of righteousness of what God's doing in the background, because it's not all one way or the other way. It's to have things happening. And to be clear, this is not, and my rant is not an anti-immigration rant. Yes, we are a nation of immigrants. We've always had legal immigration. It's the illegality and not following the immigration laws that are problematic, because the immigration laws are there for a purpose. We could go into that some other time. Uh, it's I've been to immigration ceremony. It's wonderful what happens for the people who waited in line, who got trained up, who learned about our country, who became committed citizens. It's a very different than allowing people just to come in here without any training, any okay. responsibility or accountability is completely wrong. Or quarantining people who are sick and not just release them into the public. These are the kind of things that are reprehensible and unacceptable, in my opinion. Uh, well, we have to look at what's happening. I don't, did you see on those buses how they're handing out rape kits to all the women, like from 10 years old on up? So they'd know when they get off these buses and they go to cross the border, there's a you know like a 90% likelihood that if you're 10 years old or older, you're going to be raped. And they give you the morning after abortion pill, along with these other things to help you with rape as you're coming across. We're aiding and embedding cartels now. These cart when they come across the border, they've still got a ten to twelve thousand dollar debt when they get here. So they're putting them in every community possible. And now we have cartel members renting out houses. And what they're doing is going about and collecting the debt as these people work to join the cartels. Well, these guys are sitting there with high powered weapons, with drugs and everything. And they're just enforcing this illegal immigration that's come across. So it's infiltrating even the small rural communities. And I wow. think that by the time we get into August, September of this year, that we're going to see it penetrating almost every small town in some form or another. One more comment I have, Sean, before we close up tonight is the verses 16 and 17, where it says that, the Yahweh of armies will send among his fat ones leanness under his glory of burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will be for a fire 
and his holy one for a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. My impression with that is, I remember remember when we finally defeated uh, together with the Russians and the uh, all of our allies. You know, Germany was defeated. Hitler uh, committed suicide, died in his bunker, and it was like overnight, everybody woke up and realized like it seemed like it was in one day or, you know, relatively speaking overnight, it was recognized even by those who were on the other side that they had been under a spell of a great evil. And this is what I picture here is everybody suddenly waking up once the cleansing is done. And suddenly what spell were we under? And it just goes away. That's what it means. Happens in my vision. It happened even faster than that as I walked with the Savior, because after these people fell, and we're going out and trying to rescue people that have been hiding and and seen horrific things happen to their family members and such, that they just can't believe that the uh, this terrible force that's taken over them has just disappeared, and they're in shock. And of course, we have to quickly have them believe that we are of light and goodness and we'll take them to safety and help them find food and things. But it's so sudden that the people we run onto are just stunned. They, they just cannot believe what just happened. How did this happen? Why did it happen? We couldn't believe that this was actually, that God actually did this. We knew and believed in God, but having him do this in such a quick time was just overwhelming to everybody involved. Well, there's a book that uh, Michael Yon recommended, written in 1956, called The Rape of the Mind. Um, it's on archive.org. I'm going to read it. I think this the mind conditioning that we're uh, undergoing, have undergone, and the waking up is probably going to be described in that book where we have been conditioned and we're having a hard time assimilating what's really happening because we just can't believe it. But eventually right. we're going to wake up and believe that it's things things are really happening. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Well, I think we're going to end it there, Sean. Uh we'll we'll next do Isaiah chapter eleven. Uh I want to thank you for bringing to light uh the meaning of these passages. And I hope everybody can see the relevance of the these revelations. They're these these things are literally describing our day right now in real time i'm so grateful for these thank you craig thank you for i know this takes a lot of time to go through these sean so on behalf of myself and the audience thank you for uh, spending this time and we will see you on the next podcast vision of zion sounds good thank you craig thank you